So today we're going to peek into a very fascinating book, the book of Daniel. Now, I don't know if I've ever taught out of this book, but it is very prophetic in many ways. But I believe that the Lord has a word for you here this morning. It is very important to know from the start that the primary theme of this book is to show how God is sovereignly in control over the affairs of men, especially the affairs of rulers, the affairs of kings, and all those who are in authority. You know, oftentimes what we do is we are so concerned about what's happening in the Middle East, we're so concerned with what's happening between those two nations, and we always seem to believe that World War III is on the horizon. But one of the things we have to realize is that God is sovereign over all. And here is a great example in this book as to how not one nation was lifted up or brought down until unless it was God who did it. And God had absolute purposes and reasons, very specific ones, as to why some of the nations were lifted up and others were pulled down. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. And he causes it to go whichever way he chooses. Whether the king be a God-fearing king or whether the king be a Gentile king, a pagan king, God is God over all. I oftentimes wonder when people question that, they look at the state of the world and they question that God, that Jesus is King of Kings. When you ask them, what does it mean that He is King of Kings? Uh, they would have to say, well, He is the King of all these kings that exist. There isn't a president, there isn't a ruler, there isn't a dictator, there isn't a tyrant whom Jesus is not King over. And that is true for today. But in people's mind, somehow they think that that is going to be true one day, but isn't yet. Well, no, no, no. Jesus is king already right before he gave the Great Commission. He actually says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore, because of the fact that he received all authority in heaven and on earth, that is the reason why we ought to go and declare that He is Lord of all. So it's important to understand that the primary theme of this book expresses this very sovereignty of God over all, rulers, kings, and all in authority. I like to say it this way. No man will ever make history outside of God. You think back to really horrible times within the world within human history, you think back to Hitler, and, and we always bring up his name, but there were so many others that were worse than him. And we have to say, God is in control. Your brain might not be able to figure that out, but the Word of God says so. Therefore, it must be true. So I'd like for you to go back with me to ancient times. I'd like for us to go back to the year 605 before Jesus. The Jewish nation engaged in a tremendous amount of idolatry. They always did. Then they got reprimanded by God, and they came back to Him, and then they fell back into idolatry. And then they backslid again, and then God reprimanded them, disciplined them, and then they came back to Him. And this was the pattern that continued throughout. But at this point in time, when the book of Daniel was written, 
the Jewish nation engaged once again in continual idol worship. And therefore, they remained in rebellion against God. And because of this, God brought Israel um, under His own discipline. The whole nation came under His discipline. And how did He do it? He did it by allowing Babylon to rise up against Israel, to conquer Israel, and then to capture Israel, and to take them back to Babylon, out of their homeland, out of their promised land. They went back. He took them, or they took the Jews into exile in Babylon. In layman's terms, to be taken into exile is to be captured and to be taken into slavery. This was, however, God's doing. The interesting thing is that this is when Jeremiah 29, 11 was actually written. This is when that prophecy was written to the Jewish people as they were dragged away from their country, as they were stripped from their freedoms, and as they were pulled into exile. Here comes this wonderful, encouraging prophecy that we love to take for ourselves individually. So imagine for a moment with me, Israel was conquered, the morale was low, Many Israelites already were taken into Babylon. The exile into Babylon was going to be a 70 long year exile. God already said, that's how long you're going to be in exile. 70 years. All of this, part of God's plan. Now with this context in mind, let's read Jeremiah 29, 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, there's a couple of reasons as to why we misinterpret that verse. Because number one, we don't know the history within uh, the, the background to it. That's why we don't have context to it. And we just take it for ourselves. And we don't realize, no, God is saying this on the front end of, front end of 70 years of discipline. So next time you quote that verse, <laughs> remind yourself, Am I entering a 70-year period of discipline? <laughs> Am I entering into slavery? Am I being stripped of my freedoms? Well, that was the promise that God gave them at that time. But the other reason why we usually misinterpret that is because we live in the West and individualism has become a big thing. Everything is about the individual right now. Everything is about me, me time, Myself and I. And so when we read that verse, for I know the plans that I have for you. Oh, he has a plan for me, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. He, he's going to prosper me and not to harm you. He's going to not harm me and to give you a hope. Oh, I have a hope and I have a future. Now, it's true. We, as the body of Christ, have a hope and a future. But right here, when he said he has a plan for you, he was saying you the nation of Israel, right? He was talking about a whole entire nation. Now, he was telling this to people who were in their 50s, in their 80s, being captured and was going to be in exile for 70 years. In other words, they weren't coming back. Most of them went into exile, and those who went into exile, if it wasn't for Daniel, Shadrach, Mishkan, and Abednego, who were 15 years old, they weren't coming back. Yet God gave them that promise because He gave it to a people, to a nation. 
So what I'd like to do is just walk through the first three chapters of Daniel and then conclude. The first chapter of Daniel, we see Daniel a teenager at the time. As I mentioned, he was possibly 20, uh, 15 years old. He was, in fact, kidnapped, taken into Babylon. And there, he as a young, he with his young friends, as a matter of fact, became educated for the first three years in Babylon. They were educated in all of the, the highest education that Babylon had, which was the most advanced nation at the time. After which, uh, they would enter into King Nebuchadnezzar's service. And this is where Daniel refused to eat. If you remember the story, he refused to eat from the delicacies of the king's table, but instead lived on vegetables only. And after a, few, after a certain amount of days, they tested him and saw that he was in fact stronger and he was better off for eating vegetables alone. And then we see in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar was very troubled because he had this dream. And this dream caused anxiety because he did not know what it meant, but he took it serious. And so what he did was he called for all of his magicians, all the enchanters and all the sorcerers, and he demanded from them to tell him what his dream was and then to tell him what that dream meant. And if they couldn't, because look, they were sorcerers, right? They were magicians. They were, they were enchanters. So they ought to be able to do this. And he held them to their position. And he said, look, if you can't tell me what I dreamt and tell me what that dream meant, it'll be the end of you. And he said that they would all die. Well, of course, they couldn't. They did not know how to do this. When Daniel heard about that, he asked God for mercy. And God answered his prayer. And he revealed the king's dream to Daniel. And he revealed the meaning of that dream. And here is the dream. Fascinating. There was a statue, he says, king. There was a statue. And this statue was made up of different materials. From the feet all the way up to the head. The head was made of gold. And as it went down the statue, it became of lesser value and lesser value all the way to clay and iron feet. But the statue, he says, the statue made of gold actually represents you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, and then there was a rock that was carved out of the, out of the mountain, a small stone, not by, hands of, not by the hands of men, not by human hands, Therefore, by the hands of God, this rock was carved out and this rock came rolling down and it hit, it smashed into this statue and it broke it into many pieces. After it destroyed the statue, this small little rock started growing and growing and growing and growing until it filled the whole earth. I can only imagine at this point in time, the king had to have been enamored because that was exactly what he dreamt. And who's able to tell dreams? The one who could do that is the one with the highest probability of actually interpreting what that meant. And so, he starts with the interpretation. And Daniel says to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
This is what your dream means. That statue is with the different kinds of materials represents the different kingdoms, starting with yours, the head of gold, and the kingdom that comes off to yours, the kingdom that comes off to theirs. And so, until there's a kingdom carved out of the mountain, a piece from the mountain, there's the mountain, God, and there's a piece carved out of that mountain, Christ. And that small rock will come and it will crush all those kingdoms. And this rock will be the beginning of a new kingdom. And this rock will grow until it fills the earth, meaning His kingdom and of His reign, there shall be no end. It'll grow and it'll grow and it'll grow until the whole entire earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. I can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar having heard that his kingdom's coming to an end, how he would respond. <clears throat> Very often in those times whenever a king heard a prophet give a prophecy that they didn't want, that would kill the prophet, right? And so here's his response, Daniel chapter 2, verse 46 through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have, you have been able to reveal this mystery. just want to put a little stake in the ground there. Did you notice that he did not say, My God, my king. He said, Daniel, your God, your king. Verse 48 then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon and chief pre prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Verse 49, Daniel made a request of the king and <clears throat> he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Now that's all that happened in Daniel chapter 2. But can you see how sovereign God is? Before nations and before empires even rise up, he tells everybody that they are going to. But then he also tells everybody, he predicts how there's going to be a coming kingdom that is going to destroy all other kingdoms. And that coming kingdom is going to grow and grow until the whole entire earth is filled with it. Anybody who struggles to understand the sovereignty of God has to, has to answer, how is it that God so accurately predicts all things? Well, it's because when He says it, it's happening, right? He's God. It's like how He created the heavens and the earth. He didn't try it. He did it, right? Whatever He says comes to pass. Whatever He says is truth. That's why people say that with God... You know, <clears throat> with God, all things are possible. No, not all things are possible. Like God can't lie. The moment He says something, it becomes truth. So let's go to Daniel chapter 3. And we see, again, the same principle in action. Right after the king, Nebuchadnezzar uh, learns of Daniel's interpretation of his dream. He then decides to make this image. 
Not exactly the way he saw it, but he made an image of gold that stood 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. But he did it in a massive open plain because he was going to demand everybody to come there and worship at this image. He sends out the decree and he says, Now, when you hear the music, here's the law of the land. When you hear the music play, you fall to your knees and you start worshiping that image that I made. And so there's a friendly invitation. There's music and everybody gets drawn by the music to come and worship because the music will drive them and inspire them to worship. However, if you don't, there's a fiery furnace right there and you will lose your life. So, beautiful invitation, kind and sweet. However, don't cross me, he says. I will burn you if you don't worship the statue that I've erected. Now this is where Daniel's three friends come in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, it's not a Bendigo, but Abednego. Now these three young men, also early young teenagers, it's an amazing how early, how quickly people grew up back in the day. But here they are, they knew the Ten Commandments, and as a result, they refused to bow before this image. Let's go to the Ten Commandments, and we just read the first two, because these are the, the, the first two were the reasons they did not, and they refused to bow. Exodus 20, verse 1 and 5 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, Verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. When King Nebuchadnezzar heard, well, let me just first say, do you see, the, you see how he connects the dots? If you have an idol in your life, it is interpreted as hatred for God. Did you see that? He says, if anyone, he says, you may not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the Father on the, on the children of the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me. Now, when King Nebuchadnezzar, he heard about these three young teenage boys who defied his decree, and he burned with anger. He just experienced... Daniel, the teacher of these three boys, he just experienced him telling him what his dream was, interpreted the dream, and he fell to his face, and he honored Daniel's God. And right after that, his anger burns within him against the other Jews for now worshiping that same God by refusing to worship the idol that he erected. When he heard this, he responds. In Daniel 3.14, it says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
that you do not serve my gods, plural, or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, uh, the harp, the bagpipe, they were bagpipes, can you believe it? And every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, then well and good for you. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is he? Remember, he, just, he was just told what was going to happen. His kingdom is going to come to an end. There's another kingdom coming. And then he goes, who is that? Who do they think they are? The question is, what did this image mean? Because it wasn't actually an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It, he didn't make an image of himself. He made an image. So what did this image mean? It really represented all of his gods. He said it. He said it in verse 14. He says, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? It represented, and I want to bring it home to where we are at, it represented a pluralistic society where polytheism, many gods, was the acceptable form of worship. At the time in Babylon, there were many gods. And it became common for them all to worship at the altar of many gods. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did not say, and history proves this, there, is not, there, was no, uh, um, there was no law against you worshiping your God. The law was that you ought not to just worship your God. He did not say, worship my God instead of your God. He was saying, worship my gods in addition to your gods. He was saying, you can, you can worship your God as long as He is not the only God. It's called syncretism. He was saying, you can worship your God as long as you can also acknowledge our gods. It is the mindset you will find in our culture today. That's fine. You're totally welcome to believe in your version of Jesus. You're fine. But what you are not welcome to do is to believe that your version of Jesus does not tolerate all other versions of Jesus. That you cannot do. Syncretism. So it's fine. Worship Jesus. It's fine. Just don't tell me that I'm not a Christian. Don't tell that my Jesus is not okay with this lifestyle. Jesus is okay with it. And their anger will burn over that issue, just as Nebuchadnezzar's anger burned within him over the same issue. The biggest sin in our culture today is the same sin Daniel faced in his day, which is to have a God that is unaccepting of other gods. Is to believe that your faith excludes all other faiths and that yours is the authentic one. This is why you will be called such a bigot. <laughs> right? So here is Shadrach, Mishkan, and Abednego. 
and they responding to the king in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of, out of your hand, O king. He will deliver us. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Just a, just a power-packed response. Because that response said something about those three boys that has the power to win over kingdoms. That has the power to remain untouched by fire, by persecution. You see, they trusted in God's ability to save them, yet they were completely submissive to His will, whatever it would be. They didn't say, we trust in God because He's going to deliver us. That's not what they said. They said, we trust in God even if He decides not to deliver us. You see, it's about God, not about my deliverance. It's not about me, it's about Him. But Christianity has turned that around. It's no longer about God, it's about me getting what God can offer me and give me and what I can have because of Him. There was a sleight of hand and God became the servant and we became the one He serves. Their hope was not in their deliverance. Their hope was in their God who may or may not deliver them from those flames. They refused to bow to another, not because of what God would do for them, but because of who God was to them. And this is how you and I ought to make decisions. We make decisions not because of the bottom line. We make decisions because of who's watching. We don't make decisions because it would be the more acceptable decision. We make decisions because that's God's standard. We have to have a criteria for decision making. Our criteria for decision making, whether it be getting married or raising children or having a job or being an employee, uh, employer, whatever it is we do, we have to have this criteria for decision-making, and the criteria for decision-making is always what's God's standard on this. Now, you don't, that's not a thumb sock. That's actually a scripture that you can use, right? <laughs> you don't just come up with what you believe God thinks about something. No, it's what scripture says is what God believes. What scripture says is what God thinks. The Bible that you hold in your lap is a compilation of God's thoughts about who He is that He wants to reveal to you and who you are in light of who He is. It's a compilation of God's thoughts of His will for you. And so when we, we should have a criteria for decision making. In other words, you should already know today what you would, what, how you would respond that day. You should know today how you would respond then. Whatever happens there. And this is about this is about persecution. They were persecuted. Why? For their faith. 
This fiery trial they went through wasn't because of stupidity that they spent more money than, than they should have and now they're in debt. That's not a fiery trial. A fiery trial is not the fact that you've uh, you know, neglected your spouse long enough until they leave you and now you're in a fiery trial. That's not a fiery trial. Just because the bottom of your world fell out doesn't mean you are now with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fourth man in the furnace. No, if, you, if you're going through hardships because of your own stupidity or disobedience, your rebellion, like do you really think the children of Israel, that God viewed them losing their freedom, being stripped of their freedom and going into um, 70 years of slavery, that that was their fiery, that was their f- the fiery furnace? No, it wasn't. The fiery furnace was, what are you going to do? No matter where you are, what are you going to do when you start getting persecuted for your faith? They could have just remained silent. But they didn't. Because of their unwillingness to compromise, King Nebuchadnezzar had them make the fire seven times hotter. And then he had them thrown into the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace is your persecution. What are you going to do when times become difficult? And we'll pick it up in Daniel chapter 3 verse 24. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. and He rose up in haste. Because now these guys were thrown into the fire. Now you know the story. The men that threw these three young boys into the fire... They, in fact, got burnt up and died. It was so hot. And now the king is looking upon these three young men thrown into the fire. Then the king was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound. Walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most holy God, most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. Now I'm just wondering, you know, if I was able to walk around in a fire, (laughs) and Jesus is right here with us, and we're just strolling around, shooting a breeze, (laughs) and the king's over there, come out! I'm like, yeah, not right now. (laughs) Wouldn't you want to do that? (laughs) He would not want to listen to him or obey him, right? But anyway, so they come out. Verse 27, and the satraps and the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes or their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and healed it up their bodies rather than serve 
and worship any God except their own. The end of syncretism. Right there, the end of it all. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be, born, shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the, uh, in the province of Babylon. Again, here he is, having a change of heart. Isn't it interesting how all of the persecution immediately stops? These three young men were saved by God as they refused to compromise. We oftentimes think that we can compromise our way into God's perfect will for our lives. You cannot compromise your way into God's will for your life. You can only arrive at God's will for your life outside of compromise, never because of it. So I want to conclude with a few takeaways here. Number one, God created man to be his image bearer. True? You and I, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. We are all image bearers of God. And the unthinkable sin is when an image bearer of God would bow down to an image made by men. When a human bows before an idol, it is the picture of God's image bowing before man's image. It is God bowing to man. That's why we may not bow before images. That's why we may not have idols in our life. This is idolatry. And here are a few examples that I came up with just to explain a few of what modern-day idol worship would look like. What are these modern idols that we're talking about? Because when we talk about idol worship, we're thinking about a little statue. But that's not necessarily it. So I wanted to give you just a few modern-day idols. The first is humanity. When everything is about the value of man over and against the glory of God, Somebody asked me this question, and they said, why would God have created all that He did? And then before the creation of the earth, He would have those He had decided to save. Why would He do it? Why would He go ahead and allow so much evil? Why would He go ahead and create people He knew would not get saved, and then ultimately go to hell? Why would He do it? My answer is, for His own glory. Because you wouldn't understand God's goodness if you, didn't have, if you didn't know any kind of evil. You wouldn't know God's forgiveness if you didn't know any kind of sin. How do we know? How do we know the stars are shining? Because of the dark backdrop. You don't see the stars in the day. You only see stars at night. How do we know God is perfect? Because He's so perfect as we see so much imperfection around us. How do we know God is holy? Because we see so much 
evil. How do we know God is righteous? Because we understand and see so much unrighteousness. How do you know God is kind? Because you've been forgiven. How do you know God is love? Because you've been saved. So all that has happened, all of the evil that's happened throughout, throughout humanity, it wasn't, that, it wasn't that God wasn't in control. It was that God would step back because His glory was revealed inside of a moment like they just had. Would God really allow people to go into exile so His glory may be revealed in a fiery furnace? Somebody goes, that is cruel. God wouldn't, God is good and God is, God is love. No, He would never. Why would He create somebody if He knew that person was going to go to hell? I'm like, for His own glory. No, it couldn't because how would He do This poor person, you see? There what we do is we care more about humanity than what we do about the glory of God. That's what I'm saying. Humanism is a big problem inside of the church. Because an idol that we are bowing before these days is humanity. When everything, about the va- everything is about the value of man instead of the glory of God. And if you don't understand that, you will have such a hard time with many parts of the Bible. It is very difficult to swallow the doctrine of total depravity. Very difficult to swallow the doctrine of, of, of divine election. You can't swallow any of those because man... Man, don't you love man? No, I, I, I want to see the glory of God. That's why I serve man. <laughs> right? You're in the ministry, family. Not because you love people. You're in the ministry because you love God. The second idol is self. Self-worship. Self-absorbed, self-righteous, self-importance, egocentric, elevating self, where the individual now is able to even possess their own truth. I mean, think about that. So here's God. (laughs) God is a God of truth, and He gives us the Bible filled with His truth, and man goes, yeah, but what about my truth? I also have a truth. Self is an idol. Not only does he possess his own truth, but he's become the creator of his own identity. I'll tell you who I am. I tell you my gender. You don't tell me. So we have humanity as an idol. Worshipping at the altar of humanism. Worshipping at the altar of self. And, of course, you know, worshipping at the altar of materialism. It's proven by the amount of hours people give themselves to working just for money. But then we have the, the next idol in our modern day is environmentalism. Environmentalism. It's a form of idol worship where saving the climate is more important than saving a baby. Let's save the, let's save the whale. Slaughter the baby. We love the environment. It's become an idol. We're saving the climate, the nature, climate, the nature, and the environment has become this generation's highest priority. 
It's more important now to save the environment. It's an amazing thing what's happened to companies, Fortune 500 companies. And now it's no longer paying back those who own shares the maximum amount because such a large portion of the annual budget now goes to everything green. Here's the next one, science. Science is an idol. Science becomes idolatry when science is viewed as the reason somebody can no longer believe in a God who created the heavens and the earth in six, day, six 24-hour days. It's impossible. I've heard Joe Rogan, I've heard all these people say, well, we don't need God. we got science. Idol worship. Science in place of God. The final one I'll bring to you is anything. <laughs> Is anything, anything is an idol. Anything that is given a high priority in your life, then you give to God. But oftentimes we are deceived. That's why I wanted to mention some of these obscure ones, because people don't always think about these things. How the environment can be an idol, how science is an idol, how, of course, self is an idol, that's obvious. But how even humanity is an idol. To a humanist, absolutely, humanity is an idol. So our first uh, takeaway here is that God created man to be his image bearer. And that image bearer, the sin is when that image bearer bows before something man actually made. So now God is bowing before the image of man instead of man bowing before the image of God. The second takeaway here is that we will never be able to bring um, the world to Christ by becoming like the world. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they did not become like the rest of the pagans participating in polytheism. They didn't participate in worshiping false gods in order to win over the favor of those who had false gods. And that's what we oftentimes do. We, we will drop our standards in order to buy favor or gain favor with the unbeliever, thinking that we are going to win over the seeker. There is no such thing as a seeker. The Bible says, and no one seeks after God. Uh, that's a direct quote. And no one seeks after God. No one will come to Christ unless the Father comes for the man and draws him into Christ. Why did he do it? Not because he was seeking, because he wasn't seeking. He did it, why? Because he loves. If he did it for any other reason, the love of God is diminished. Can you see that? If he comes for you for any reason other than his love for you, then his love is diminished. So it's not because you're cute, not because you're valuable, not because you're wonderful, it's because he loved you. That's why he came for you. Do you want to win the world around you? Today's message is for you. Do you want to impact your family? Do you want to impact your community? You cannot do it any other way than this, non-compromising. This is how they won over the whole entire kingdom. You saw how the king responded? If anybody 
doesn't worship these three young boys God, then we will pull you limb by limb. <laughs> we'll pull you apart. <laughs> I love how graphic this guy is. <laughs> he said something similar to, you know, the, the, um, the enchanters and the magicians. He said, tell me what I dreamt and then tell me what the dream meant. Otherwise, you know, I will. And, and he gave something similar to pull your limbs, pull you apart limb by limb. <laughs> and then he turns, he goes like, if you guys don't worship Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego's God, we will pull you, pull you apart limb by limb. We will kill you. How did everything change in a place like Babylon? Three boys refused to compromise. That's how you win people to Christ. It's not by taking the word and, make, and dumbing it down so that, so that anybody could see the wonderful ethics in it. And therefore, yeah, Jesus said a couple of nice things. So I'm kind of a Christian too myself, you know. That's not how you get anybody to be a Christian. The way you get them to be a Christian is don't compromise the word of God. Teach it as it is. And you know the other thing I want to say? Is that oftentimes what we see is we have to, we think we have to make the Word of God, turn it into language so a fifth grader can understand it. No, you teach the Word of God the way it is. It'll strike at their heart. Maybe not at their mind, but at their heart. Number three, the third takeaway is the fact that there was a fourth man in the fire with them. And that reminds us that God draws near to His people in the midst of their trials. It's when you are in the valley of the shadow of death. He is with you. And then number four, whether it was the rise of Babylon against Israel, the Jewish exile, or the fact that everybody in Babylon were commanded to worship the only God, it is evident of something. And it's evident that God is in fact in control of history. Let's pray. Father, today, I thank you for your word. I pray, Father God, if there's anybody here who needs to make right with you, that today will be their day. Let them realize, Father, they cannot compromise their way into heaven. They cannot compromise their way into, into a relationship with you. They cannot compromise their way into having an in, intimate relationship with you where they are in your presence. They cannot compromise their way into your will. And Lord, that they will turn around, meaning repent, and that they will run to you. That they will be like the tax collector who pounded his chest and said, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. Let none of the people under the sound of my voice be like the Israelites who keep walking away and first need to be disciplined by God before returning back to him. But let us heed your word, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.